making a bunch of noise now. <laughs> Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Peace and love. Assalamu alaikum. This is Brother Ali. This is a Traveler's Podcast. Thank you for being here. Uh, if you're new here, welcome. You are certainly most welcome. I'm very grateful that you're here. Uh, if you are someone that has already been listening and or watching this podcast, welcome back. Thank you for spreading the word. Thank you for liking, sharing, subscribing, all of the above. If you're a person that usually watches this podcast on the episode, on the uh, platforms where that's available, you're going to notice right away that there's not video of me and my face talking to you in your face. Uh, this is audio only. This is the first episode we've done like this. And it's unique in more ways than just that one, but they're all connected. It's kind of a, a myriad of realities that are all coming together to make this episode what it is. And uh, I'm learning to embrace the things that are and to believe that the divine chose these things. I might have chosen something different, but this is what the divine is choosing. I would like to be a person that always prefers what the divine is choosing over my own uh, desires or, or over what I choose. And that could be really hard to do sometimes, but that's the way my teachers are. And that's a quality in people that I really love and admire. And I'm really inviting to uh, for that to be my reality as well. So there's kind of a myriad or a uh, kind of a group of conditions and situations that are leading this podcast to be unique. And honestly, I'm sitting here right now recording this, really excited about it. And I'm just, I also have a curiosity that I'm really trying to foster. I'm a person that has dreams and has goals and I'm driven and all that stuff. But you have to manage, you have to balance all of that. Every virtue uh, that a person can have needs its balancing virtue in order for it not to become toxic and painful. And every tool can become a weapon or something harmful if it doesn't have its balancing virtue. So, you know, virtues that are easy in me are certainty. <laughs> I definitely incline towards certainty. Um, and I have a vision of how I want things to go, which is funny because I don't have, my physical vision is, is deeply impaired. But my artistic vision, it doesn't only include the music that I make or the podcasts I do. I have a vision of how I would like things to be. And uh, that's really good. That's a really good thing, especially in this time. There's not a lot of that. A lot of times people are feeling and experiencing this idea, this feeling of being uncertain and not sure. And uh, people like it when somebody is sure. And oftentimes that's how I am. But you have to balance that with the counter virtue, with the balancing virtue, the idea of that yin and yang. We got to become balanced. And so uh, certainty and vision and things like that, their counterbalancing virtue is curiosity and wonderment. And so I'm, I'm really sitting with that. And I'm, it's, it's easy to access in this moment. I'm sitting here with my headphones on, with no camera on. And I'm like, man, this, this might be dope. So there's a number of, of things that are just making this the, the case this week. One is that my lifelong friend, collaborator, partner, um, just really important person in my life's journey, BK1, Brendan Kelly, the producer of this podcast, is taking a much needed and deserved uh, family vacation with his beautiful family. So you know, I'm partially blind and I do the setup and everything myself, uh, the setup of the room and of myself and the camera and the lighting and all that stuff. So he's the second set of eyes that make sure that things look the way I think they look. <laughs> There's a lot of times that he'll be like, hey man, you know, major things that I'll miss. So he's not here. 
The other reason that I'm not turning my camera on right now is that I'm sick. I'm on tour and I'm under the weather. Um, I did a lot to try to avoid it. I've been very disciplined. You know, I have what they call polyps on my vocal cords. So the vocal cords are usually smooth and they come together. There's really vocal folds. We call them cords. And I always thought that there was like a number of like strings in the back of our throat. But when you start having difficulty, you go to the, the ear, nose and throat doctor and they put a camera in your throat and you see your, your voice, you see your vocal folds. So mine, because of misuse and things like that, especially early in my career, I have these bumps that they call polyps or nodes or nodules that make it so that the the vocal folds don't connect. They don't touch each other the way that they're supposed to, especially in certain areas of my vocal register. So that's already a reality. And there's a surgery that, that you can get. And to be honest, I'm a bit afraid, but a lot of artists get it. The thing that always scares me is that, and it's, it's an irrational fear, but Harry Belafonte got one. Uh, he's one of the people that I respect most in terms of his bringing together music, performance, culture, uh, you know, using his platform to speak about uh, social issues, to elevate people in their stories. He's just one of the people I admire the most. And he got a bad vocal surgery that left it so that not only can he not no longer sing, the man has difficulty speaking. Uh, now, that was done on purpose. And I, if you haven't had a chance to check out his uh, autobiography, his memoir, please read it. It's something about my song or something. Please forgive me. I didn't look this up before I sat down to start talking. But it's something about him talking about his song. Uh, but Mr. Belafonte basically always struggled with his voice. And he struggled with a deep sense of imposter syndrome. And he said that, from what I remember of reading his memoir, that his over producing and overperforming came from a place of him trying to prove that he was worthy. And that really resonated with me. I don't have a sense of imposter syndrome, I don't think. If I do, I'm not able to see that in myself. But what I do have is a deep desire to be accepted, to prove my value. You know, that, that comes from me being a little kid, being albino, the circumstances in my family and things like that. And then really living my life in a community that I'm not born into by ethnicity. Where do I belong and do I really belong there? That's something that's always living inside me. Um, and I have a different relation. I have an ongoing relationship with that reality, but I am an over an overachiever <laughs> on the mic, especially when I was starting. You know, I really wanted to prove to myself and prove to others that I deserve to be up on this stage and I deserve to be opening for Rakim or MF Doom or Atmosphere or I deserve to be here. And so I overdid it. So Mr. Belafonte had those and he was supposed to deliver a concert. I think it was at Carnegie Hall and he had bad laryngitis. And he said, I can't, I have to call it off. I can't do it. And the promoter was just thinking about their money in that moment. And he said, it's okay. We're going to get a doctor. They're going to perform a procedure and you'll be able to perform tonight. No problem. Now, what they do is they come in and it used to be with a scalpel. And now I think they do it with lasers, but they cut those, they're really like a callus. Like if you've ever had a really bad callus on your fingers, it's from overusing tissue that's not meant to be used in that way. So we have calluses on our hands because we're carrying things improperly or we're asking those pads on our fingers or hands to do things that they, that they don't normally do. And so they have to change their, their personality almost. They have to change their form. 
to start to adapt to what we're requiring of them. If you've ever played the, the guitar, for example, the soft fingertips become really hard so that they can push those strings down. So it's like we start asking our body to do something that it wouldn't have done on its own and behaving in ways that it, that it might not be set up for. It starts to develop, uh, it starts to change its... its uh, it's formed to fit that. So what happens is these these like calluses on the vocal cords, they go in and they cut them off. And then your voice has to heal. And so there's a period where you shouldn't speak at all. There's a period where you certainly shouldn't perform. And it's several weeks, you know, it's it's several days or weeks before you should even speak and maybe a month before you should really perform. So anyway, Mr. Belafonte was kind of coerced by the people that were promoting this concert at Carnegie Hall, they said, no, we'll have somebody come and you'll, it'll be no problem. And they, so they cut the polyps off and they gave him some, uh, some shots, some steroids and things. And then he performed that night and it ruined his voice forever. And, you know, um, it's just something that always is in the back of my mind. So anyway, having those kind of bumps on my vocal cords, I've learned that if I'm that if I eat the right things, if I do vocal rest in between shows, uh, if I get the right rest, and if you know, one of the things is I love to talk. I just love it so much. And on this tour, like Mally is on this tour, super amazing artist from the Twin Cities. He's somebody I love to talk to because he asks me questions that make me think of things I've never thought of before. And he's just so beautiful. Like he's just such a beautiful guy to be with. That like I just want to talk. To him all day. I had the same problem when uh, Saw Rock and Soul Messiah were on tour with us. I had the same problem when uh, we were on tour with Open Mike Eagle. I just want to talk to them all day, but I can't do it. So I've been very, very diligent and, and disciplined on this tour. Uh, drinking enough water, uh, really limiting things that I love. You know, I, I can't have sugar. It's bad for my voice and bad for your body. Uh, I have to have a really limited amount of caffeine. It really, it's not good for the healing in between uh, performances. Have to have almost no dairy that, that because mucus is a problem. So I say all that to say that uh, my vocal health is really a big deal. And when I have these polyps and then also I have mucus in my throat, it makes it really difficult to, I have to push extra hard for the sound to come out of my voice at all. And that pushing is when I lose my voice. That was all a tangent and an explanation for me. Just, I don't feel like turning the camera on. I don't feel good. <laughs> I just don't feel like being on camera right now. I'm very happy to talk to you, but I don't want to be on camera. Uh, you know, another thing that happened uh, recently on this tour is uh, me and my DJ Last Word went to uh, Florida to perform at a festival called Reggae Rise Up. I mentioned it a few episodes ago in the intro. And I, I saw Ant you know, Atmosphere was performing and Ant, my, my, another of my longtime, like lifelong brothers and friends and collaborators and partners, he produced most of my albums, most of my music is produced by Ant. And he just knows me in a way that nobody else does. And he said, man, I'm, I'm listening to your podcast, I'm watching it. And he said, I really love it. He said, you're not totally comfortable yet. And I really am, that's what I'm looking for. You know, you're, you're not just being you 100% yet. And that's really his job. And that's what he's done in me, with my music and also with Slug and the other people that he works with is like he sees us in ways that we don't see ourselves. And he's able to give us music and create an environment and no pun intended, but an atmosphere around us that makes us be ourselves on the mic. And so he said, anything you do where you're being yourself completely, it's gonna be amazing. But if it's less than that, then it'll be less than that. And so he said, what do you think about turning the camera off? 
He said, you know, there's a way that people, t- he's, he told me, he's like, when I'm talking on the phone to you, it's different than when I'm on FaceTime. You know, so it's something that I thought about and considered. So I think this will be an opportunity for me to check that out. This also is different from other episodes. There's, I was going to say there's not a guest, but really this is an Ask Me Anything episode of this podcast. So what that means is that I'm the guest and you all are the hosts. And I'll be answering questions that have come in things that people have wondered about. Some of them are really heavy. Some of them aren't. <laughs> you know, I, I also probably incline towards heaviness. But one of the things Ant said to me is like, man, your close friends know that you're really funny. And on, my first re- on our first record, on my first real album, Shadows on the Sun, when I listened to that record, I realized that like, man, I was funny on that album. There's a lot of humor on that album. And most of the time it's because I was hanging out with Ant. I really wanted to make him laugh. And he and I can make him laugh. I can't make everybody laugh. Not everybody likes me. I'm not for everybody. The people that like me seem to really like me. And that makes me feel really good. I feel really accepted, you know, and I feel really connected. And I can make Ant laugh. And that, that makes me feel so good because he's hilarious. He's so funny. You know, when you make your funny friends laugh, it's a different thing. And, um, you know, if I, if I can make Dave Chappelle laugh or if I can make Mo Amr laugh or Michelle Wolf or like my comedian friends, if I can make them laugh, I feel really good. But when I try to make them laugh, I can't. I've like tried to give them jokes. And it's like, it doesn't work at all. They're so not interested in my joke. It's funny, like I've told Dave Chappelle stuff. And he always just looks at me and he just goes, hilarious. <laughs> he just moves on with whatever he's doing. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's not going to work. I tried to give Conan O'Brien a joke and I tried to give Paul Mooney a joke. When I, when I, when I played Conan O'Brien, when I did his show with Mint Condition, me and Stokely from Mint Condition talk about this. And uh, that was actually my intro to Dave Chappelle because he was in Saudi Arabia feeling really out of place at this like prince's house. Uh, not Prince, but a Prince of Saudi Arabia. And he's like, can we just watch American TV? So they he, they turned on TV. It was Conan O'Brien. And it's me in mint condition uh, performing Uncle Sam Goddamn. And ever since then, Dave really loves that song. It makes me really happy. Morgan Freeman had just gotten a really bad car accident. It was really bad. He was on this like the side of a mountain. And Conan's really nice. Like he came and hang out, hung out with us. He invited me to come and sit down on the couch, which is a big deal. We didn't really talk much, but like everybody knows from the Johnny Carson days, if they say, hey, come sit down, that's like them saying like, yo, you're dope. The joke is Morgan Freeman, you know, legendary actor from Shawshank Redemption, and he played God and all these other things in his movies and blah, 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 was in a terrible car accident on the side of a mountain. They had to use the jaws of life to, to pull him from the wreckage of his totaled uh, vehicle. He was airlifted out by a helicopter from the side of the mountain. All that's true, by the way. Uh, and the punchline is, but Miss Daisy is fine. That's funny to me. <laughs> so I, told, I told him the joke. And he, and he said to me, he was like, man, that's a really good joke. That's a really well-crafted joke. That's really good. He said, it's too late. You know, it's that you need to kind of do that the day it happens. That's the kind of joke that you have to get it on the day it happens. But he's like, man, that's a really good joke. He said, you know, if you can come up with 10 of those a day, you could be a comedy writer. And I, I can't come up with 10 of them a day. Um, but when I listened to my first album, 
it's funny, you know? And it's one of the things that I really, it's kind of sad to me that I never really came back to that. I did it, I've done it a little bit, um, but I listen to like backstage pacing is funny. You know, there's elements on a lot of these, on a lot of the things on that first album that are funny. I think um, Forrest Whitaker, the song Forrest Whitaker is one of my biggest songs and it's, you know, there's humor in it. So shout out to my man, Ant, who told me that I should consider uh, doing this without the camera on because maybe I'll be a little bit more fully myself. Let's jump into these questions. We're already 20 minutes in. Good God. God bless you all for listening to the podcast. <laughs> all right, let's jump in. I'm going to pull my phone up because I, I made a list of these questions. Let's see what we got. So I've decided not to read the questions verbatim, and I've also decided not to reveal or share the name of the person who posted them or sent them in. Uh, The first question that I'm choosing here is asking, have I or would I ever consider being on a reality TV show? And it's kind of a funny idea, you know, but as they go on, it actually makes a lot of sense. Basically, what this person is saying is that they connect with the music and they really enjoy the podcast, but it feels like it's not just the fact that the beats and the rhymes are good. It feels like more than that. Um, And it's not just the fact that this is a podcast, we have really great guests. And I'm hoping that these guests are able to be a version of themselves on this show that they haven't been before because of the fact, because of the connections that we have. That's what I really appreciate the most. When I hear myself talk, I feel like I have a long way to go. And shout out to people that are amazing at it. I love Jamel Hill. I love Talib Kweli's podcast. I love Mark Marin. There are people that are such dope interviewers. And I'm like, man, I am not, I haven't found my style yet. But I love this show in the sense that Cornell West and uh, Ilhan Omar and Jane Elliott and Chuck D, maybe they can be a version of themselves on this show that they haven't been in public before. And I think that's really beautiful to see. Also, there are folks that maybe the world doesn't know as well, that, but I wish they did. Like, I think the world needs to know Stokely and Maimouna Yusuf and Sarak, et cetera. So uh, I love doing this show. But they basically are saying, this person is asking me, it feels like I'm connecting with more than just the material, but I feel like I'm connecting with the person behind the material. And that's a very, very deep and profound compliment that I really love because that's really why I'm here. I love rapping. I love doing it. This podcast is becoming a genuine labor of love for me. Like I'm starting to really get a lot of joy out of doing this podcast. But really what it's about, like what I want is to connect and to to understand and to be understood and to connect the dots. That's what really get, keeps me going. Uh, the person is saying, we would love to see a day, a week, a month, a year, a few years in the life of Brother Ali. And it's interesting because it just gave me this memory that in 2007, we had put out the Undisputed Truth album. Uh, at this point, I had been touring for about five years. Uh, my first album, Shadows in the Sun, came out and it, it received a lot of acclaim and people really loved it. But I kind of got to be a new artist for almost five years. It wasn't until Undisputed Truth came out that I had a video. So there was some distribution. We were in stores. This is pre-Spotify. Uh, I think MySpace was the thing at that time. YouTube was brand new. So I was kind of having my moment. And the entertainment industry in general, they do this. They kind of vet people and they kind of look at people that are starting to bubble. And it's like, is this person useful to us? <laughs> and the answer seems to have been no, not this time. If you're, if you're lucky, you get a few opportunities to try that. So somebody like LP, for example, had a moment around the same time. Uh, in 2007, we, were, we put out records at the same time. Um, 
And we were both having a very similar go of it at that point. So, you know, I did the main stage at Coachella and all these kind of things. And one of the really big companies in reality TV hit us up and said, we're interested in basically doing the equivalent of a pilot episode with Brother Ali. We want to like have cameras. We want to mic him up. We kind of want to follow him around. We just want to follow him for a few days when he's doing stuff, when he's just living his life. We want to see him with his family. Uh, we want to see what it's like behind the scenes and all this stuff. And I was kind of reluctant to do it. You know, I told him from the beginning, I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to instigate drama with me and my wife. I'm not sure if I want to show my wife and kids on the show. I don't know about this because I see how they play these things. They said, just give it a shot. I said, okay, I'll give it a chance. So summer of 2007, my 30th birthday came along. We were on the pay dues tour that was organized by Merce and the people that did the original Rock the Bells tour. Uh, Rhyme Sears, Def Jux, Living Legends. Three buses. There's a Def Jux bus, Rhyme Sears bus, Living Legends bus. We're all on tour together. Uh, Sage Francis was on that tour as well. And it was dope. You know, we, we basically were doing underground independent hip hop festivals in a variety of cities. And this was Merce's idea. And Merce put it together. And, and I, I'm really grateful to him for that. And then the cities where Rock the Bells was happening, we did both. So the day before my 30th birthday, we're in New York and we're not only doing our pay dues thing, but our pay dues tour is just a stage at Rock the Bells. And it's Public Enemy and Wu-Tang Clan and Rage Against the Machine, super dope. Next day is my 30th birthday. We're about to ride home on the bus. It's like a 16-hour ride home. Merce asked me to come and holler at him. And he says, hey, man, uh, this is a birthday present. It's a flight so that you can go straight home and be with your family. You don't have to do this long bus ride. And then this way you can spend your, your 30th birthday with your family. So, oh, man, that's dope. He's always doing stuff like that. Merce is just an amazing person to be friends with. So it was great. So I called home and told my wife. Uh, my son had been spending the summer at Wait House, the, the youth program at Wait House, which in South Minneapolis is a really highly respected, well-known community center. And the youth program was being run by my DJ and the producer of this podcast, BK1, his wife, Julie, was running that program. And so my son was spending the, the summer in that program. So we let them know, like, hey, I'm going to be home for a couple of days. We're going to keep him at home so we can hang out, spend some time together. So I fly home. This also was supposed to be the first couple of days that we would record, you know, this kind of pilot tester episode footage to see whether or not I should be on reality TV. <laughs> so... I didn't tell the reality TV people that I was coming home early. I figured I don't want to wear a microphone on my birthday. I just don't feel like doing that. So I didn't tell them that I was home. The next day we get up, we do the first of the two shows in Minneapolis. They meet me ahead of time. They mic me up. There's cameras. It's all very professional, this whole kind of thing. And I realize like, this is just my short time that I'm here with my family. And they were kind of recoiling. They didn't like the cameras being around. And I'm just like, dude, this is a couple of days with my family. I don't like this. So then I go to the show and I'm hanging around my friends at the show and they very clearly are not feeling the camera. And so they're not being themselves. And I don't know if I'm being myself. You know what I mean? There's things that maybe I would say that I'm not saying because I'm thinking about, okay, how are they going to edit this to try to make this look controversial? And I don't like, and I'm just kind of going around my friends trying to be normal, but nobody's being normal. And how could they be expected to be? How could any of us really be normal? It's very strange that we find ways to be normal when there's cameras following us around. Because the reality of intimacy is that there are things you say to your intimate friends and partners in private that aren't for everybody. Privacy is something that 
actually matters. It really matters. And context is really important. And you lose all of that when you do, when you're followed by cameras in your private moments. And so I told my wife that night, I'm not doing it. I'm not hip enough for this. I, I can't do it. I feel like I'm not even really present and living my moments, much less documenting them. It's making it so I can't even connect. And my wife, as is usually her way, apologized. She's like, I'm sorry. Maybe it's because you could just feel how much I didn't like it. But if you want to keep on in this, I'll keep on and we'll figure out a way to do this. And she's extremely supportive and always has been from day one. And I just was like, no, I'm not subjecting myself or my, my folks to this. So I, the next morning I called him and I said, thank you for everything. I really appreciate your, your interest and, you know, but I, I'm not doing this. So don't come today. Don't bring the cameras. Don't mic me up. Don't come. They tried to convince me, just give it another day. Just let us film one more day. I said, no, I don't like it. My gut doesn't like it. My wife doesn't like it. I'm not doing it. Thank you, but no. And these are these pivotal moments where, like, where the music industry is like, hey, can we work together or no? You know, I tell the story again with Stokely doing uh, Conan O'Brien, and, and we did Uncle Sam Goddamn. And he said, you know, this is a, this is a statement you're making. You know, this, they let you on TV and this is what you do. <laughs> you know? and, and this, like, you're not famous. This is an, uh, you know, a show that people watch to unwind before bed. They're used to laughing and just seeing cool stuff and being entertained on, while they're dozing off. You know, they're ending their day. And it's a, it's, a, it's a statement you're making. And we chose to make it, you know, over and over and over again. These are the things I choose. So in any case... The next day we show up and now the cameras aren't there. And we're our second show at First Ave. As we're getting on stage, you just start to get this palpable feeling that you have when something major is happening, even if you don't know what it is yet. Bob Dylan says in The Ballad of the Thin Man, something's happening here, but you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones? And it's like something's happening. There's like some sort of energy. And then my DJ, Brendan, gets a phone call and I just can tell by his energy and his body that like some this is affecting him and he hangs up the phone he says I'm sorry I have to go I can't DJ I can't do the show today I have to leave right now and I don't have any time and he leaves and I said oh man I wonder what's going on so now I'm thinking okay can I still perform can maybe aunt DJ for me you know because aunt was on this tour I'm sure there's something else we can figure out here but you know, and I'm, I'm worried about my guy, like what's going on with him, but we're about to go on stage. We literally uh, were about to walk on stage. Someone had a TV on in the office of First Avenue. And so Randy Hawkins, the famous sound engineer, tour manager, worked at First Ave for a long time. He comes downstairs and he says, the I-35 bridge, which is a major thoroughfare in Minneapolis and St. Paul, it, that, that goes over... The Mississippi River collapsed. It broke. He said, man, it's all messed up. There's cars falling in the water. People are falling in the water. People are dying. It's, it's a catastrophe. And this was August 1st, 2007. As we start to realize, we're looking at the footage and we see, if you see, go back and look at this footage, you'll see that the bridge straight up broke. People fell in the water. Cars fell in the water. Uh, there were two points where the bridge broke but didn't fall in the water and there were vehicles basically suspended uh, and hanging on being dangled essentially over the Mississippi River and one of them was a school bus the school bus was a field trip of our dear sister Julie Brendan's wife who runs the youth program at Waite House she still does that 
on a bus full of her teenage youth who she's mentoring to help work with the younger kids and a bus full of younger kids. The bus fell when the, when the bridge broke, but it didn't fall in the water. It's it basically being suspended in thin air over the water. This is the program that my son spent the whole summer in. He's just not on the bus today because daddy's home. So he stayed home to hang out with me. But this is our sister. This is my, like, we love her. This is one of our favorite people. Like, if you know her, this is an amazing human being. And it's Brendan's wife. It's BK's wife. And so it's like, okay, I'm not performing either. You know, one of my dearest friends was in a catastrophe. I'm not going on stage and I'm not, the show's not going to go on. So I informed them, I'm sorry. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm on my way to this. I'm on my way there. And my wife it was on her way to the show with my son so that they can watch me perform. But she couldn't get there because there's crazy traffic. The cell phones are down. She was still trying to figure out what's going on. So she finally is able to reach somebody. And the person says, Ali isn't here. The bridge collapsed. Ali's at the hospital. And so my wife doesn't know if I was somehow in the accident. You know what I mean? We've been traveling on you know, tour buses and stuff. We run around doing all these things before shows. She doesn't know if I was in the accident. She just heard that there's this catastrophe and Ali and Brendan are at the hospital. So she rushes to the hospital. We get there and I reunite with her. She realizes like, okay, it's not my husband, but it's one of our best friends, this Julie, and these children that she's with. And we don't know what her state is. We don't know what her condition is. And so all of these people, all of these, it's like people that know her and love her and like know people that were on the bus, we're all in a room together, just this kind of waiting room that they set aside for like, okay, you guys are the school bus and we're all in this room together and we're just trying to figure out what's going on. And so we, we finally, the cell phones start working again, but cell phones were down. So we just weren't getting information. Finally, the cell phones start working again. And when I get a text from Brendan, uh, it looks like she broke her back and she's got really bad cuts. She's alive, but she's got really bad cuts. She's really banged up and they're working on her, you know. Uh, but of course, it's Julie and she's strong. While we're sitting there waiting, <laughs> oh man, this is a big day, man. While we're sitting there waiting, my wife hands me her purse and she says, Look in the purse. So I look in there and the only thing in the purse is a pregnancy test that says that we're having a baby. Now, our son is my son from my first marriage. So, you know, my, my wife at this time had, hadn't had a baby yet. She hadn't been pregnant before, but we wanted to. And uh, so, she, you know, while we're in the midst of this catastrophe, she shows me we're having a baby. And she said, I was going to wait and tell you later, but I figured you would need something to hold on to hope. And I'm genuinely a hopeful person, but I can't lie, man. Sometimes you don't realize, like, you know that people are dope, but the idea of Julia being messed up was really impacting me, you know, because it's like, those are the kind of stories of like this unsung hero, this beloved person that like, if anything ever happened to them, there would be an enormous gap in this world if, if, if this person wasn't with us anymore. So finally... Brendan comes down and he said, if you want, you can come see her. He said, man, I'm not going to lie to you. He's like, man, I love this woman so much. 
She's so strong, you know, incredibly strong, very fiery, just amazing person. She's a G, and so is he. They're just some of the most amazing people I've ever known. And I said, can I see her? And he said, yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. It's ugly. Her back might be broken. We're trying to figure out like if she's going to be able to walk again. We don't, we're not going to know that just yet. But she got these cuts in her body, and she was... She was climbing back and forth on the bus, making sure kids was, were okay. Those thick windows from the bus uh, shattered. And so there's that thick plexiglass from those windows in her cuts. Because she, even with her broken body, she's crawling up and down, making sure that kids are okay. And he said, so what's happening right now? (laughs) He's like, here's what you're walking into. (laughs) They're up there pulling the glass out of her cuts and she's awake. (laughs) And so we get up there and the curtain is drawn. And I said, no need to pull the curtain. I don't need to, you know what I mean? She's probably not clothed. But I yelled in there. I said, Julie. And she said, hey, hey, Ali, sorry to mess up the show. I'm like, girl, don't worry about it. We're just so happy you're okay. We love you. She's like, I love you guys too. And I told Brendan, well, we were in the elevator going up. I told Brendan, BK, I said, man, if it's pregnant, she just shared that. I just found out she shared it with me because it would be some hope to cling on to. And he smiled and we hugged and he said, thank you. And then he went in and he told her, he said, this is going to be good news for her too. She's going to love knowing this. So, you know, he gives her the news and she's happy and so she's in there screaming while they're pulling glass out of her cuts. And, it, and I'm just hearing this. And she goes, ah! She goes, that was a good one. <laughs> she's like, don't be scared. And I hear the doctor in there like laughing. And she's like, this is what I remember her saying. Forgive me, Julie, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm mistaken. But what I remember her saying is, come on, don't pull it out like a bitch. Just pull it out. <laughs> so it's like, okay, she's still her. You know what I mean? She's here, she's her. You know what I mean? It'll get figured out. You know, so I go back downstairs and and we wait basically until uh, she's settled in and we make arrangements, you know, that that Brendan is not going to finish the tour, obviously. So we finally get home and, you know, we get settled in. You know, we talk to my son about the fact that, you know, be very grateful because you could have very well you know, been on that bus and our dear friends are there. And, you know, and Brendan said, I really want you to keep going. I really want you to finish the tour. And so I did. And I lay down in bed with my wife at the end of the night. And she turns over and she says, imagine if they would have been recording today. (laughs) Imagine if they would have been recording today. I mean, who knows, you know, how things, how life might've been different, you know? That certainly would have been one for the books. You know, the other day when the, the thing happened on the Oscars, Chris Rock was assessing the situation. And like everybody that is in entertainment or media or culture or content production or whatever, like everybody, there's moments that happen and you're like, whoa, that was a moment. Did we get it? He says, whoa, that was the greatest night of TV ever. Because one of the things that's happening inside him is that this thing just happened. Like, I'm part of history now. And... It certainly was a thought that I had, and it just made me realize, like, man, the way that I interpret it anyway is, no, that's not for me. 
you know, that's not for me. And no shade or no tea to anybody that does it. You know, I know people that have been on Love and Hip Hop and and it's not for me because it doesn't feel like a real representation of life. Do a little business. We're brought to you by Zakat Foundation. Uh, Zakat Foundation is really it's, it's just a great, great organization. They've been around a long time. They're very well trusted. All of my interactions with them have been good. Amna Mirza is the, the main person that I know there. And she's a really amazing human being. Um, she comes from the corporate world. She's done marketing. She's done all kinds of different things. And then she went into the nonprofit sector because she wanted to do something that meant something. And then when she got there, she realized that there's a lot of challenges. And she has been fearless in addressing those challenges and in trying to improve the way that things are done. Her pet project is their relief program for orphans. She saw that the standard way of doing things and operating in the world of orphan relief is to show you pictures of the kids and let you pick the kid. And she's like, okay, I get it because that touches people's hearts, but people are racist and like people are, you know, people have biases. And like, why should this humanitarian program for kids that are in need be subject to people's biases? So she said, you guys got to trust me on this one. She fought for it to say, we're not going to show pictures of the kids. It's not Tinder. This isn't a dating app. You're not going to swipe left and swipe right on children who lost their parents in the war in Syria or wherever they operate. We're just not doing that. And so she said the default setting when they said, which kid do you want? Do you want to pick the kid that's most in need on our waiting list? You care about Somalia or you care about you know, a particular region, you can choose that region. Um, but what she found is that when you get, when you frame it like that, people say, oh, well, of course I want to help the kid in the most need. And that's a major shift in an industry. People usually stick to what works, and she didn't do that. So Zakat Foundation operates in every region of the world. Um, it's an Islamic organization, but they don't try to convert people or proselytize. In Islam, we're just honored to be able to share and to give. If, if we believe that Allah gave us more than what we need, then it's our honor and privilege and duty to share. You know, and they have people on the ground that make sure that things are done right and in all of the areas that they serve. I can't go on the books and ride for something because everybody's going to make mistakes and have trouble. But if I can't get a decision maker on the phone to have real conversation and real talk, I'm not doing this. When I met Amna Mirza, I was the invited guest of an Islamic organization that I still love, but they just were treating the artist really bad. And I, that was my introduction to her. She came in after those, those things had been done. And I was like, yo, this is, what, this is how these organizations treating artists. And her response was just so real. She's like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, this is how it goes down. So I had real talk with her and she no longer works there. And since she's been at Zakat Foundation, you know, her understanding of how arts and culture are absolutely connected to humanitarian work has just been really dope. So it's Ramadan, you know, people are giving a lot and there's a lot of opportunities to do so. Some of these non-Muslim organizations are like appropriating the reality of Zakat, which is super corny to me and it's really whack. There's basically two organizations that I do my giving with. One is in my neighborhood in Istanbul um, and the other one is Zakat Foundation because the fact that I know them. I trust them. If there's ever anything weird, I trust that I can talk to them, at least talk to Amna, and I know that things that there there will be a solid answer and that there that something will be done. 
it says something about that organization that they welcomed this young woman and her revolutionary ideas and that they didn't run from it, but they actually were like, yo, this is the kind, this is the type of thinking that we need. You know what I mean? That they actually were responsive and, and grateful to, uh, to the changes that she's making. So people, <laughs> people keep telling me, man, you got to make your ads quicker, but this Zakat Foundation partnership is one that I, that's really meant a lot to me. So we're grateful to be joined by Zakat Foundation. Check them out online, Zakat US or uh, Zakat, Z-A-K-A-T dot O-R-G. Rezma Menachem is a name that comes up on this podcast a lot. I uh, just recommended his last book, My Grandmother's Hands, which was a New York Times bestseller to Miss Jane Elliott. And uh, she wrote it down. I thought it was really cool that she's a consummate student, especially people of color that are talking about the reality of race in America. And Resma does so as a therapist. He specializes in trauma. He worked with uh, troops in Afghanistan. And he works with uh, people in the Twin Cities and beyond. Uh, my son and I actually saw him as clients. I've done sessions with him as a as my therapist. You know, he's somebody that is really focused on healing, and he talks a lot about trauma and also the relationship between trauma and race in America. And he has exercises and offerings for everyone involved. Uh, you know, he talks about bodies because he, he he really insists that like that's a big part of the conversation that's missing is what's happening in our bodies. You know, so he talks about white body supremacy and white bodies and black bodies. And it's not to, you know, discount the fact that we are a spirit and a soul and an intellect and a psyche and an ego. Of course, he's a therapist. So those are all things that he's dealing with. But it's like, man, let's bring this conversation back to the body. And it's very important. It's very healing. Uh, one of the things that he says is that, you know, there's a lot of white people that are trying to do good work and they're trying to heal and things like that. But he said, man, the real healing is going to come from collective communal healing um, amongst white bodies. And that's the, that's the work that they can do together. And he said, and it'll likely take many generations, but he said, you know, the Ku Klux Klan and these, you know, these groups, they built culture around being white supremacists. They've built culture around being racist. They've built culture around uh, centering white bodies and white ways of being as the default standard by which all of humanity will be judged. And then carrying out violence in, uh, in many forms, you know, to, to perpetuate that and to, to make those things a reality. He said, man, they've got culture. They've got songs. They've got ceremonies. There are things that they do when their children are born. There are ways that they're buried, they're dead. They have ceremonial clothes. They have ceremonies, say it for as crazy as they are, he said. They've got ceremonies. What do anti-racist white people, what do they have in terms of culture? Where's the culture around that? Where's the ceremony around that? Um, because that kind of collective work is what's actually going to bring about a shift in the culture. And he said, you know, in that sense, there's no white allies. There are white people who are doing that work or not doing that work. And uh, so what he offers is really based in healing. And it's really based on the proposition that the human being needs and deserves and has to heal. His new book, I haven't read it, is called The Quaking of America. It comes out on April 12th, right around the corner. And uh, go to resma, R-E-S-M-A-A dot com. Pre-order a copy of this book. If you haven't checked out My Grandmother's Hands, I highly recommend it. He's offering something to the conversation around race that's really unique, 
that's missing from the conversation. He has a piece of this healing and of this conversation and of this solution that I'm not hearing specifically in anyone else. So, and he's a friend of mine. He's part of our community. Uh, he's one of my teachers. He's one of my healers. And so really honored to be partnering with Resma and talking about his new book, The Quaking of America. Let's deal with something that's not as quite as heavy as the last story. Uh, somebody asked me, and this is kind of a collection of questions, but someone asked me if I've tried psychedelics. And someone else asked me what I think about legal cannabis and its, its powers to heal and things like that. So the short answer is no, I've not uh, tried psychedelics. Um, I became a Muslim when I was 15. So I think I'm like I tried to smoke weed. But, you know, who knows like what I was getting my hands on in- <laughs> In the early 90s, you know what I mean? I tried it. I never felt like I was high. Um, I think I probably tried some St. Ives or Old English malt liquor or something. Um, I I know at one point I went to a thing and there was Kool-Aid with a bunch of stuff that people just dumped in it. This is all like 13 and 14-year-old business. But I never really... Like substances weren't really for me. You know what I'm saying? My father struggled with addiction his whole life and he ended up dying of suicide related to that. You know, I've had plenty of addiction around me and stuff, and I just, I never liked it. I never liked substances. I never liked the way that people respond to them. And then when I, when I became a Muslim, they're forbidden. Uh, intoxicants or things that alter your perception of reality are forbidden. What the Quran spe- says very specifically is wine, but the word in Arabic is khamar. And, and it's actually a, a verse where the divine, the creator is speaking to the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and says, you know, the people around you are asking about um, intoxicants, specifically wine, and they're asking about gambling. Tell them that in both of those are some benefits and great harm for human beings, but the harm far outweighs the benefits. And so let them know that those things are forbidden. Now, this was years into the Prophet Muhammad's preaching and teaching and organizing and building community around the idea of the oneness of the creator, the oneness of creation, the oneness of the human family. So there were people that were with him and practicing Islam that up until that point had been gambling and had been drinking wine. So when that was revealed, they said that that people went home and smashed their wine pots and that wine flowed in the streets because people gave it up. But there were people that were struggling with addictions. And one of the stories that I love so much about the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is that there was a person that was really struggling and, and he would be like publicly drunk. Islam is a religion that really values privacy. And so what people do in private uh, we don't go and look out, look into that. You can't spy on people. What people keep private in terms of their own struggles is their business. And we're actually encouraged to keep our struggles private. It's known that all of us are going to have struggles it, with the exception of like counseling or therapy or something like that. You know, in those cases, we may speak about those things. There was a person who was struggling so much that he would be publicly drunk and he was actually reprimanded publicly. And the, some of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad cursed him. Because they're like, this dude is just not, he can't get it together. And the prophet, peace be upon him, said, don't curse him. And they said, why? He's, you know, he's this, he's that. And he said, yes, but he loves God. And he loves God's messenger. Like basically, the reality of his love is what's most important about him. So we're not going to curse him. 
And, you know, there's another, there's a lot of statements of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, about the reality of love in the spiritual path. There was a person that said, when is the end of the world? Like, you know, when is the end time? And the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, prayers and peace be upon him, he said, well, he didn't answer. He said, what have, what have you prepared for it? And the person said, I haven't prepared much, but I love God and I love you. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, you'll be with who you love. You'll, you'll be with the ones you love. That reality of love is so important. And um, so, I, you know, I became Muslim when I was 15 and I never struggled with substances. And so I just never got, I never really got into them. But <laughs> one time I was touring with uh, Atmosphere. It was me and Slug and Ant. We did this, we did this run of shows called Three the Hard Way, where it was the three of us on stage together. Some of the most fun I've ever had on stage and on tour was on those runs. We did them mostly in Europe. Um, cause we both, man, Europe is tough for us because we're in this weird pocket where like, if you're like an old school traditional hip hop artist and like very, like if you got records with DJ Premier and like you are official old school, traditional classic hip hop, uh, you got an audience in Europe. You know what I'm saying? So like Ari the Rugged Man and Der- Jeru the Damager, they moved to Europe because they're like, yo, these people get it. And it's true and it's dope. And like you, DJ Premier is like bigger than Kanye West in Europe amongst hip hop heads. But we're not in that place. They kind of look at us as like this alternative hip hop thing. They respect us. They like us. But we're not royalty, hip hop royalty in Europe. But... It's also really expensive to tour in Europe. It's difficult to tour in Europe. Dilated Peoples does great in Europe. You know what I mean? I opened once for Dilated in Europe. Super dope. That was amazing. But I had no fans there because the shows all sold out before anybody even knew I was on the bill. So I was like there trying to win over the audience. It reminded me of being on tour with Rakim. Really dope, man. Shout out to Dilated. I love those guys so much. But yeah, so we decided to combine. It's like, all right, let's just the three of us go on tour. It'll be, you know, Brother Ali and Atmosphere, but on stage together. And Ant produced all the music, so he's DJing. We do a Brother Ali song and Slug does the the backups. We do an Atmosphere song. I do the backups. Really fun, really dope. So we're in Amsterdam and we have an early van call. And I'm like, man, I'm going to need coffee. So I go to the coffee shop. It's not like a Bob Marley Rastafari coffee shop. It looks like a third wave coffee shop in like, it looks like a hipster coffee shop. It's not a, like, you know, this is the mid 2000s. At that time, you know, weed was legal in in Amsterdam, only in coffee shops, weed, hash, stuff like that. But it's very clear when you go in there, like it's all, you know, usually there's a lot of like appropriating Jamaican Rastafari stuff going on in that situation. So you can really tell where the weed is. You know what I mean? And, and uh, sex work is also legal there too. And I actually went to get a massage one time and I was like, hey, how do I know I'm not going to like, you know, an adults only massage parlor? And they're like, yo, uh, prostitution is legal. So you don't have to wonder. And I'm like, okay, good, cool. Cause I just, you know what I mean? I just want a massage cause I'm on tour and I'm in, on planes and vans and stuff. I just, you know, this is just a self care thing. I'm not trying to be nasty right now. So, <laughs> so I go in this coffee shop and I'm thinking, I'm thinking it's coffee. So I buy coffee. And then I realize, like, man, I'm about to be on a long van ride with this coffee. If I don't have anything in my stomach, I might get sick to my stomach. So I'm just looking around and I grab a brownie. 
This is a brownie in pack in cellophane packaging, you know what I'm saying, that came from a distributor of baked goods. <laughs> it looks like a hostess brownie. It looks like it, you know what I'm saying? It's written in Dutch. I can't read it. You all know where this is going now. So like I get in the van and I'm eating this brownie and I only ate half of it because it just tasted nasty. Like it didn't taste good. I'm like, man, these Europeans and their weird baked goods. You know, like a lot of times you're in Europe and you try to eat something, you're overseas, you try to get something that you're used to and it's just not what you're used to. But so it's like, all right, cool. I'm in their country, no big deal. I ate half of it, didn't think anything of it. I just put the other half away. Man, when I tell you that I had the straight, like, man, I, first I didn't realize that I was messed up. You know what I mean? I just thought, like, man, this is weird. Like this, I mean, this is weird. And Aunt told me later that I was putting baby at the end of all my sentences. <laughs> I'd just be like, they'd be like, hey, you know, uh, you know, what, what what'd you eat? Oh man, just had some coffee, baby. <laughs> Same baby at the end of all my sentences. <laughs> and um, so we get to the hotel and I'm like fully in it. You know what I mean? And it's the first time I've never been, I've never felt this feeling before. And I don't even know how to describe what's happening to me. And I didn't even realize it was the brownie. I'm telling you, it didn't look like cannabis stuff. Nothing about it said cannabis. So I had no clue what was happening to me. And my crew didn't know what was happening to me. Because also they've never seen me under the influence of anything other than sugar and fat and, you know what I'm saying? It's not that I don't have vices. It's not that I'm not, like, I, I mean, I've been overweight my whole life. I struggle with food. You know what I mean? My struggle is ice cream and sweet potato pie and mac and cheese and pizza. And, like, those are my struggles. You know what I'm saying? I got different struggles. It's not not claiming superiority. It's just I I never, those kind of like substances that alter your mood and your perception, that was never part of the deal for me. So I didn't know what was happening and they didn't know what was happening. So we get to the hotel and this happens a lot on tour when you're in a van where it's like, okay, we only have a half hour. Take your bag, take it to your room. You know, they, they check in the hotel, they give everybody their room keys with the number. Take this up to your room, throw your bag in there. If you want to change clothes, if you want to shower, if you want to shave, if you want to call home, you got a half hour, meet back down here in a half hour. So I get on the elevator with my bag and everyone gets on the elevator. Everybody gets off in their floor. And I'm standing there and then Ant gets back on, gets on the elevator and he's like, yo, you're bringing your suitcase to the show? And I was like, huh? And he's like, yeah, you still got your suitcase. Are you, are you bringing your suitcase to the show? And you got your same, you got your van clothes on. You didn't change. He's like, are you okay? Is everything cool? Like, were you not able to get in your room? I realized, y'all, that I had been riding the elevator up and down for a half hour. <laughs> I just never got out of the elevator. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then, so then I finally realized, like, oh, I think Ant told me, or maybe Slug told me. You know what I mean? Because Slug is certainly no stranger to the edibles. You know, cannabis isn't Ant's thing. Um, but, you know, Slug is no stranger to cannabis and edibles and all that kind of stuff. So Slug is like, bro, you're high. <laughs> he thought it was so funny. And Ant was just cracking up laughing. They all were laughing. And I was just like, okay, how do I get not high? Like, how do I stop it? And he's like, you can't. You just got to ride it out, man. So it's like, okay. So then I enter the point where like, what am I doing? What am I saying? What am I? Then I start questioning everything. So I go put my stuff away. And then all throughout the night, I just keep turning to Ant and saying, how long was that? And he's like, what? From then to then, that, how long was that? And he's like, what do you, what do you mean? How long was what? That, that was a long time. I think that was a long time. And then I would just be super quiet. And then I would turn to him again. Was that long or short? How long was that? 
crazy. So all that to say, uh, no, I have not tried uh, hallucinogenics. I've not, that's an experience I've not had. I haven't tried ayahuasca, any of that stuff. People say, what do you think about legal cannabis? You know, in the Islamic tradition, so what the Prophet Muhammad, what, what was revealed is specifically wine, but the word that was used is an Arabic word called khamar. khamar. It means a veil. Uh, so sometimes the hijab, the original word for the hijab that women wear, their veil, is called khimar. And it comes from the same word. It means to veil something so that uh, something that isn't meant to be seen, you know, uh, or something that is meant to be obscured, is private, isn't seen. And along those lines, men also have a dress code in Islam. And in an ideal sense, the men's dress code in Islam is very similar to women. Uh, it's best for men to have something on their head. It's best for men to wear long sleeves. It's best for men to wear... You know, I, I have very religious friends, men, that do not go out of their house in short sleeves. They don't go out of their house without their collar buttoned all the way up. They don't go out of their house without something on their head. Anyway, so khimar means when something is veiled. And what's understood by the majority of scholars is that that's talking about all of alcohol. Um, and even in small amounts, the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, if something in, is intoxicating in a large amount, then it's uh, forbidden even in small amounts. So cannabis is kind of a, it's a bit of a question. The majority of scholars have said something along these lines. I'm not an Islamic scholar. I'm not even a serious Islamic student. I used to think I was a serious student until I moved to a place where real students of knowledge are in Istanbul. And I realized I can't even call myself a student. I hang out with students and I hang out with scholars and I'm very lucky to do so. You know what I mean? But just the same way that basketball players that make a rap album shouldn't call themselves an MC <laughs> or like, you know, a, 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 like a celebrity that basically brings their laptop to a thing and someone gives them the aux cord and they play a bunch of songs off their computer. That person's not a DJ. You know what I mean? Like, come on, Jazzy Jeff is a DJ. Babu is a DJ. In any case, so the, what the overwhelming majority of our scholars have said in the religion of Islam is that the kind of default there is that if it's used recreationally for the purpose of hindering one's perception of reality, our scholars are, are going to say that that's something that's not allowed in Islam. Do Muslims do it? Of course they do. Of course they do. They always have uh, hashish and uh, cannabis. And and then Muslim scholars even had a conversation about coffee and, and uh, very early on. If you check out a book called The Monk of Mocha, you'll hear this amazing story about a dear friend of mine, actually, um, our brother Mukhtar Al-Kanshali, who uh, is... He, he is reviving uh, the growing and, and production of coffee in Yemen, which is one of the homes of coffee. Initially, the, the Muslim scholars had conversations about coffee because they're like, is this an intoxicant? And basically what they determined is that, no, it's a stimulant, but it doesn't change the, a person's perception of reality, whereas hashish and cannabis do change a person's perception of reality. And so the overwhelming majority of our scholars are going to say that it's forbidden to do recreationally. Uh, but if it's prescribed and treated like medicine, that there are uh, exceptions that can be made. And again, I'm not a scholar. And so if that's the reason that a person is asking, I'm not the person to consult for that. In terms of whether or not something is legal in America is like, 
when we look at the reality of, of cannabis being criminalized, it was an extremely racist thing that was done. Uh, if you check out The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, Dr. West writes the foreword. It's an extremely important book. And it, you know, it talks about the war on drugs and how the war on drugs was formulated even before the, the introduction of crack. And it's not a conspiracy theory to, to acknowledge that the U.S. government introduced crack into the black community. Um, the war on drugs started before that, but even before that, when slavery was made illegal, those amendments that made slavery illegal in America said it's illegal to hold someone in bondage and profit from their bondage and, uh, unless duly convicted of a crime. So it basically just shifted slavery and made it something that's, relate, that's still legal uh, if a person is incarcerated. And so in that case, you know, cannabis uh, being at least decriminalized personally by my own observation, this isn't related to the Islamic tradition, but by my own observation, it's like, yeah, I, I, I feel that, you know, and I'm not mad at that. And, um, you know, according to my tradition, alcohol is far worse. You know, but alcohol is so normalized. And I think people don't realize that live in America or live in Europe, that the idea that everyone's just going to drink alcohol by default is a really strange one. That's a very strange idea. Um, you know, but if someone, does, you know, uses a different type of intoxicant, then that person is castigated for that. So if somebody does cocaine, they have to keep it a secret. And, you know, in the famous words of Rick James, cocaine is a hell of a drug. It is. I don't, you know, cocaine is horrible. Heroin is horrible. I, you know, I just, I've watched these things destroy people's lives. But I mean, my father's suicide was directly related to alcohol. It wasn't, it wasn't cocaine. It was alcohol. And I mean, and, and I think alcohol is one of the worst things, you know, and the, the, the idea that a whole society by default drinks alcohol as a common practice that like if you don't drink you have to explain yourself you got to have a reason for not drinking otherwise people are people are genuinely offended if you don't drink and some of my heroes you know at the end of a tour or something like that'll be like hey man we're all doing a shot of hennessy and i'm like i'm so, not me i'm sorry i love you you know I, I i can't do that and i've had to tell people like yo I made a promise to the creator of the heavens and earth, whether you agree with that or not. Like this is, and I think it's one of the things when we think about other societies, and this is a question that I'll, that I'll hit in a second, but when we think about other societies, it's like uh, some of these cultures and societies we're ta that we're talking about do not have that uh, collective intoxication, that collective outlet, that collective crutch, that collective distraction, that collective whatever we want to call it, there are societies that we're talking about that do not have that. Uh, it's not to say that there's any society where, there's no society where everyone's sober. That's also a case, true, as well. All of these societies, there are people that figure out ways to get drunk, people that figure out ways to get high. Every society. There are, and there are bars in Turkey, it's not the norm. There are certain sections, you know, and you can buy alcohol and there are people that drink and all that stuff. Um, it's not the default, though. And in certain other countries, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult to find that. It's difficult to do it. Uh, my opinions on weed being legal is I don't think people should go to jail. And especially the way that black and brown people go to jail and, and are, are still in prison at extremely highly disproportionate numbers. Like there's so many black and brown people doing long stretches in jail. And, and the cannabis industry, the way that it was set up, perpetuates this reality of 
white advantage. You know, that they for years were disproportionately going after jazz musicians and even, you know, the, the, the branding around cannabis to call it marijuana. And, you know, there's a lot of deeply inherently racist propaganda and, and programming around cannabis. So it's one of those things where it's like, I don't do it. Um, I don't think it should be a default thing. Um, that everybody does. I don't. I just don't think any of these things should just be default. That like now that it's legal, everybody just jumps to do it. And I think that everything should have intention, and everything should be explored and examined. And I think we should all ask ourselves serious questions. I, I know a lot of practicing Muslims that partake in cannabis now, and I don't judge them. But I think that it's something that we should really think about and, and shouldn't just kind of do by default. And thank God, you know, I, I don't hold public office, so it's just not for me to decide. I want to make sure to do a couple of music-related joints in here. Um, you know, there are people that hit me up about music stuff all the time. And there are questions that people like to ask a lot. And it always is... I'm always amazed with like what people who don't make music, the things that interest them or what, how they are perceiving the creative process and things like that. Because, you know, I've just always been a creative person. I've always done this and my friends have always been the same way, but you get a lot of the same questions. And one of the questions or just types of question that comes up a lot is people want to know what do, what is artists opinion about other artists and other art. So people always ask me like, who would you collaborate with? Who do you listen to? What inspires you? Who are your top five? Um, who do you want to make music with? And it's it's interesting to me that like that that that's that's so fascinating to to uh, to people. But um, you know, it's a question. That, there are questions I get a lot, so I'll answer them. People ask me all the time. It's such a standard. It's become a standard hip hop question to say who's your top five, <clears throat> and um, so it, I don't like framing things like that. Like I'm just not into it, but. If you have to do it, it's a question people get all the time. And I don't want to be this like contrarian dude all the time. It's like, actually, I don't see it that way. Every time I hear myself talk like that, I'm just like, brother, at least shut up, man. Just answer the damn question and stop being, stop trying to be better than everybody all the time. Everybody's got to know what type of person they are. And you have to know what are the pitfalls and downfalls of being this type of person. It's one of the things I love about Islam so much. One of the many things. But in the Quran... God tells the people that are reading this book all the downfalls that are just whack about religious people. <laughs> it's in the book. They're all in the book. All the things that non-religious people don't like about religious people, they're all in the Quran. It's so dope to me. I got a lot of questions about Islam and I think maybe I'll do a full episode. Maybe it'll be part two of this where I just share about Islam. It's the month of Ramadan. Um, it might be a good idea to do. In any case, you got to know what kind of person you are and you got to know the downfalls of being the kind of person you are. Like I was saying at the beginning of this episode, like you got to balance it with, you know. So anyway, people say, what's your top five? And I'm looking at Brother Ali like, dude, just have a top five. So, okay, here's my way of doing my top five. I do it based on people that have, because I'm an artist, people that have influenced, who have influenced my art, and the way that I make my art, but also influence me as a human being because of my interaction with them. That's how I have to do my top five. Because otherwise, I just can't do it. There's no way to make a top five because I'm like, I make this list and then I realize like, oh, but how can Melly Mel not be on the list? 
damn, I can't make that list without Grandmaster Cass because all my favorite rappers from the early part of this list, he's their favorite. How can he not be on there? Or like, how can I make this list and like Lauren Hill isn't on it? So I just can't do it unless it's like, these are the people that have absolutely shaped the way that I make my art, but then also my interactions with them also shape my life. So the first one is KRS-One. I told the story, you love to hear the story again and again about how I met KRS way back when. KRS famously was my favorite artist, you know, uh, for a very, very long time. He's absolutely in my artistic DNA. If you listen to BDP, Boogie Down Productions, BDP Live Hardcore Worldwide, the first show on that album, that is the Bible. That's the Quran of my live performance is based on that. What I've been trying to do since day one of jumping on stage with a mic, trying to rock a hip hop party is achieve that. To me, that's the gold standard. KRS on stage, his wife at the time, Miss Melody, she passed away. You know, Heather B., who's on uh, The Sway in the Morning Show now. KRS-One's brother, Kenny Parker, is his DJ. Uh, I think D-Nice is in the house. He has like a, uh, like a dance hall dude come up and do his thing. I mean, but I mean, just the way he commands the audience, he does new songs, he does his old songs, he flips them, his crowd interaction, his messaging of things. There's even certain things that I say all the time on stage. Sometimes I'll end a song and say, yes, yes, that's KRS. He is the standard to me. I used to quote at least one line from him on every project. I have a song called Heads Down You Haven't Done Yet, which is kind of a humorous flip on a song that he has called This Style You Haven't Done Yet. So I did something like a KRS cover. It's an interpolation kind of thing. If you know me and know my story, I talk about it all the time, but when I was 13 years old, he gave a lecture at Michigan State University. And then I asked a question, asked him to sign my book, and he brought me on stage. He told me to read the autobiography of Malcolm X, which is what led me to Islam. But I saw my favorite rapper give a lecture, and I got to stand on the stage next to him and look up and see him and see the audience. And I knew in that moment, this is what I am. Like it was as plain as anything in the world. I'm like, this is going to be my life, and it is. And I'll never get over that. The divine gave me that. When Kendrick Lamar was little and living in Compton, there was a big crowd of people in the street, and he went outside and looked, and it was Dr. Dre Snoop and Tupac filming a video. And he he had that same feeling. Uh, Dr. West talks about on the podcast, Dr. Cornell West saw Martin Luther King. And it didn't click until Dr. King was was killed. But... He was like, that's what I am. When Dave Chappelle was little, there's a photo of this, but he met Muhammad Ali when he was little and he said, that's what I am. And there's so many links between Dave and Muhammad Ali. Uh, and of course, when I became Muslim, I was offered the name Ali and I, I accepted it because of Muhammad Ali. Who I am in my life comes out of that moment. And I, there's no way to overstate that or underestimate it. It's just such a defining. So KRS was my first. Uh, second one is Chuck D. You know, Chuck D also such a huge impact on me. And he's somebody that's become a genuine friend. And in the Islamic tradition, you study with a teacher. And then first that teacher gives you permission to practice what they've taught you. So you start with what's called ijazah, which is permission. And sometimes they give you permission to teach even. But then there's another level called izin. And then the Ithin is like full on, you are in this chain now. You're in this legacy now. Not only have you become an accomplished student, and you've graduated as a student, but now you are a teacher of your own. And that's what Chuck has basically conferred and conveyed to me. Not everybody's going to respect it. I don't expect, I don't have expectations of anybody else with that, but it means a lot to me 
that that man said to me, not only do I not need to ask his advice and permission anymore for things, because I treated him like my Muslim teachers. I would ask him, what would make you happy to see me doing in this moment? And after a certain point, he said, hey, man, you don't need to ask me that. You are your own artist. You're your own man. You're your own leader. You're your own movement. And then at a certain point, he even gave me permission to like, you can take my words and my work and do whatever with it you want. And then he did this series of drawings during the pandemic called Most My Heroes Don't Appear on No Stamp. And it was his musical influences, and he drew a picture of me, and that really matters to me. So Chuck is number two, but also his music. I mean, also my voice, also the way that I, like he, it's, it's him, you know. Number three for me is Rakim. And these aren't necessarily in order. I think maybe they're in order of like, they're just in like chronological order maybe. And Rakim, as a lyricist, also, you know, Rakim also identifies with Islam. He's a five percenter. I'm a Sunni Muslim, but they're not theologically the same. But him saying all praises due to Allah, and that's a blessing. Him saying, uh, mentioning the Holy Quran. When Rakim tells a story about a woman uh, that he's trying to talk to, and she disses him, and he says... She turned away. No play. I said, okay, you don't really look good. I hope you have a bad day. It's the worst thing. It's the roughest thing he ever said about a woman. And this is a time when NWA had a full skit on their album where they pick up a prostitute, then they murder her and throw her out of the car. One less B word you got to worry about. I mean, this is, in, this is part of the legacy of NWA and of Dr. Dre. And it's important to know that. The same people that made After Police and Express Yourself and some of the greatest rap music of all time, they also, that's part of it. They were extremely and profoundly violent towards women. During that time, Rakim, that's the roughest thing he ever said about talking to a woman. But then also, then he ends up in a relationship with her in the song. And he talks about her mind. And he always talks about women as full human beings that are interesting to him and, and that he values and loves. And he's like, you know, I, I, that whole song is, I want to know what's on your mind. That's the name of the song. I want to know what's on your mind. Like, not only is she beautiful, but she's confident and dignified. And I just want to know, like, what are you thinking about? You know what I'm saying? And what's, I want to be on your level and I want to get with your vibe, you know? Like, that's Rakim. Also, when Rakim parted ways with his original partner, Eric B., to go back to NWA, really vile, violent, dehumanizing public beef with Ice Cube. When I see you, I'm a, uh, we're going to cut your hair and sodomize you with a broomstick. I mean, I'm sorry, that's what they said. And, you know, and Ice Cube made no Vaseline. That's part of that legacy as well. And that's the prominent popular. When they beefed with each other, it was rough. And that we just have to know that, that that's in there with our, as much as we love Tupac. He told Biggie, I, I had sex with your wife. That's his wife, man. Like that's in there too. Like we just let, we just let's tell the whole story. Let's just remember the whole complicated narrative of the of our heroes, you know. But during that time, Rakim used to be Eric B and Rakim on every album, and then he comes out just Rakim, and it's like, whoa, no more Eric B. What's going on? And he says, and no, I ain't down with Eric B no more. That's the diss. <laughs> that's the Eric B diss. During that time. You know what I'm saying? When these guys are saying the most vile stuff to their former, to, to the people they used to be in the game with. So he's somebody that just really makes me want to be a better person and a better lyricist. And he, he, he's a, a public reminder of what's best in us all. 
And I just, I love him so much. And then early on in our career, he took me on stage, uh, on tour twice. He took me on tour once, me and Brendan, the producer's podcast when he was my DJ. We went on tour with Rakim. Uh, we followed their tour bus in a van, but we opened for them every day. And he embraced me and he went on the record for me. Back in the days of the blogs, he made a video talking about how him supporting me. And that really meant a lot. And then he took me on a second tour after uh, Undisputed Truth album came out. He took me on tour again. And this time I was on his bus with his family and with his beloved wife. So I'm riding in the back of the bus with him. And, you know, we're talking about the theological differences between five percenters and Sunnis. We're talking about his history and his relationship with his heroes. And he's asking me questions and he's listening to what I have to say. And that validation, you know, and that acknowledgement and that partnership and that brotherhood and that mentor-mentee relationship, you know, that lasted a year between us. And I really hope that we that Rakim will come on the pod. He said yes. It was something about my heroes, like I can't push them too much. I just can't. I, I have to keep a certain level of manners with them because they're my elders and my heroes, and I'm just not going to hound him. But he said yes, and hopefully we'll get him on the show. Who do we have so far? KRS, Chuck D, Rakim. That, that's my kind of like trinity of hip hop. The next one is Slug from Atmosphere. And Slug is one of the most underrated, underappreciated greats. MC-wise, in this culture. And it's because, in my opinion, what he's done, he's been, and we are going to have Slug on the podcast, by the way. Slug made the decision. I was I was there, I saw it. You know, he's a person that's also never been accepted. We'll dig into this more on the podcast, but he's black, white, and native. Him and Ant are both black, white, and native. Their moms are white. Their dads are black and native. They appear to people to be white. If you don't, if you're not from South Minneapolis, that's really common in South Minneapolis, but not necessarily around the world. So they're understood to be white. And just the idea of not fitting in, the two of them were very early to be like, hey, we're not going to fit in anywhere. So we're just going to do our thing. And they've always kind of done their thing off to the side. And it's like, okay, don't accept me. I'm not here for your acceptance. I'm here to be me. And whoever likes it, likes it. So because of that, I think Atmosphere hasn't had the impact on hip-hop culture that is required to say that somebody is the GOAT. My personal feeling about objective GOAT, it's really hard to argue against Jay-Z. I think you got to acknowledge like Jay-Z has done more to earn that spot and has achieved more to earn that spot than anybody. And I, I could defend that if I had to, but I'm not going to do that right now. And I do think that Slug has done as much as any other MC in terms of the sheer amount of music he's made. There aren't many artists that have made as much music and released as much music as Slug. And the standard of it is extremely high. They created a subgenre of music, no doubt about it. So many artists that came after them. And I would include in that Mac Miller, in certain ways, both in business and music, I would include Wiz Khalifa. Uh, this lineage is one that people don't know. I could I could describe it. Certainly, Macklemore is directly from that tree. Uh, Logic is definitely from that tree. Their impact on the culture has been great. It's just that people don't know it's their impact. But they created a new way of approaching music and a new way of doing hip hop. Also, the topics and the things that they that he's talked about. And the, the approaches that he's had. He 
he's one of the most unique artists of all time. And also Slug can kill the mic. If he were ever to be invited into those uh, BET hip hop cipher things where Premier is backspinning and impeach the president or something, Slug can hold his weight with anybody. And a lot of people just don't know that because that's not what he's known for. But Slug is ill. You don't want to battle Slug. You don't want to go off the head with Slug. Some of those things are things that he might not be concentrating on as much. But still, every time they put out a project, you're going to be reminded that Slug can rap. And then the impact on me is probably greater than any other artist and maybe even any other person, just to be very honest. Dr. West always says, I am who I am because somebody loved me. I am who I am because of that man. I, I just wouldn't be me if it wasn't for him. Um, he's the first person to take me on tour. He's the first person to to really show me that we should be musicians. We're not just the, whatever conception we had of being rappers. You got to be a songwriter in the tradition of everyone from Bob Dylan to Burke Backrack to Nina Simone to uh, you know Bill Withers to uh, Gil Scott Heron. We're in that tradition, and then you got to be a performer like that, and you got to treat yourself as a as a, as a performer, man, like you're not just a, a rapper getting on stage spitting your bars. Treat yourself like a great band and then become one. And then he's the person in our little circle, like Minneapolis started to be known as this like underground mecca, but that's because of him. I'm saying there are so many other people that do great things. He's the one that showed us all that you don't have to just be in Minneapolis. And most people are jealous of him and hate him for it, just being really real. But he's the one that showed us we're not just going to rap for our local scene. We're going to make music that we want the world to hear, and then we're going to figure out how to allow the world to hear it. Um, I also met my wife on, on tour with him. So did my current DJ, Drew, last word. He met his wife. A lot of us met our wives. You know what I'm saying? I had really settled into the idea that because of the way I look and where I'm from and what I rap about and the way I live my life, I didn't think it was possible for me to really have a career doing this. That man made me know that it is possible. And then he took me out there with him and showed me and let me observe him doing it and taught me. And every opportunity that was his, it's very hard to not be emotional talking about this. Every opportunity that he had, he made sure that I had it too, small or large. I was with him when the music industry wanted to make him a big superstar. This is the day that I met my wife, by the way. We're in New York at SOBs. MTV is there to film Slug. And Slug, and, and they're in the room next to me. They don't know that I can hear him. And Slug says, oh, I want my man, Brother Ali, to be in on the interview with me. And they say to him, like, yeah, I get it, man. You're a rapper. You want to bring your posse. It's real, very condescending. But we're interested in you, not your bodyguard. And Slug is like, oh, you got jokes. You know what I mean? He didn't just let that dude say that about me, even though this is his first time on MTV. It's his first time. And what's he thinking about? I want Ali here with me. He didn't have to do that. He didn't know I could hear him. You know what I'm saying? But by that time, this is, a, this is like, I'm 10 years in with this dude at this point, even at this early phase, knowing how he is and how generous he is. We want you. We don't want your bodyguard. Oh, you got jokes. Uh, that's why they give you the big bucks or something like that, you know? So then they do the interview and they say, okay, um, thanks. It's just going to be a short little thing. We want you to rap now. Just spit a little something a cappella. And Slug says, oh, I'm sorry. I can't rap a cappella. I just can't do it. And the dude is like, just a couple bars. And he's like, I can't. I can't rap without a beat. But my man, Brother Ali, can beatbox. <laughs> oh, 
man. See, I, I can, if Brother Ali beatboxes, then I could rap. And the dude's like, okay, fine, go get him. So Slug gets up himself. He doesn't send somebody to come get me. And he comes in there with this big smile on his face and he goes, dude, you, um, will, will you please beatbox for me on MTV? They want me to rap and I don't feel comfortable doing it. So he's not even telling me I went to bat for you. He didn't know I could hear him the whole time. I, 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 I'm, I just, I'm nervous, man. Could you please beatbox for me? And I didn't break it to him that I heard the whole thing. So I go in there and I sit down and I just do my little... And he's, you know, it's a slug having a little fun with Brother Ali, keeping it on the one. He just did his little simple, but it's like, man, that guy's going to make sure I'm on TV too. The first time uh, I ever played Coachella was because I was on tour with Atmosphere and somebody canceled and Slug, you know, was telling him, oh man, trust me, trust me. Let Brother Ali fill in for him. Trust me. Wait till you see this. Um, when I first had my first round of press, the first time I ever did press, these big writers, John Caramonica, every single one of them was like, I'm, fi- I'm so glad to finally hear your music. Slug won't shut up about you for the last three years. That's all I've been hearing about is wait till you hear Brother Ali. And he doesn't have to do that. You know what I'm saying? He doesn't own my public. He doesn't own my publishing. He doesn't own my. Ma- He's not getting money from my music. He's just doing that because it's in his heart and it's what he believes in. So, number four for me, and these again, these are in chronological order, but Slug. And then number five for me is Yasin Bey. I would say in the mid '90s, like I've been rapping my whole life, but in the mid '90s, I kind of, I didn't love where hip hop was going. You know, I was considered an imam at my mosque. And I was married and it just didn't seem realistic. And so along with meeting Slug and Idea and Musab and I Self Divine and like these people that showed me like you can be independent and you can do it where you live. Yasin Bey's music came out. And, you know, there was conscious music was still very alive and well at that point. It just didn't feel like it was necessarily touching the average person. And so when Yasin came along, he was so free and so beautiful. And he's a Sunni Muslim. There's a lot of people related to Islam and hip hop, but I would say the majority of them come from the 5% nation of gods and earths. Um, some of them are related to the nation of Islam. You know, some are connected to Dr. Malachi York's community. You know, but as a Sunni Muslim in the community of Imam Warthi Muhammad, the son of Elijah Muhammad, there weren't a lot of us. The family of kind of like black American Islam is a family and we don't need uniformity to have unity. And I love them all. The second we're together, we do not talk about our differences. If I'm kicking it with Rakim, if I'm kicking it with Lord Jamar, we're not talking about our theological differences. We know what they are and we just don't, they don't even come up. But, and for Yasin to be there and, you know, be connected to Masjid Taqwa in Brooklyn with Imam Siraj Wahaj, and to have stories from our community about him. You know, I've been around Minister Farrakhan in the Nation of Islam when Jay Electronica is there. And you just see the excitement that like Jay Electronica is directly of us. Also, I mean, he's had a profound impact on the way that I write songs and sing and rhyme. And when you listen to uh, Rites of Passage, which is my demo tape, that's not my first album, that's a demo tape I made in a hotel room. But you hear a lot of Yasin Bey, most deaf, in my voice and my rhyme and huge impact on me. But over the years, Yasin has become a really important friend to me. Not only are we both Sunni Muslims, but we also are really inspired by the people of Tasawwuf or the people they call the Sufis. We have this, we're inspired by the same teachers, um, you know, people like Sheikh Hamza Yusuf and Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah and Imam Zaid Shakir and Dr. Sherman Jackson 
and Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, uh, Sheikh Ibrahim Osiefa. We've both kind of like grown in that way as well. And I would say he played a role in me and my family moving out of America and living in Istanbul. So my top five, if I, you know, for me, are KRS, Rakim, Chuck D, Slug, Yasin Bey. If I could, if it could be six, I would add Talib Kweli. You know, both for his impact on me as an MC, but also his impact on me personally. And I'll just say very quickly, uh, somebody asked me, "What do you think of Talib Kweli and the fact that he's always arguing on the internet?" Um, that's something that comes up a lot. You know what I mean? What I'll say about that is that Kweli is a king for people who are into lyrical and or conscious hip hop music. Talib Kweli is one of our undisputed kings, leaders, champions, our heroes. From the time that he came on the scene until now, he's one of the people that has planted the flag for, mu- for hip-hop music that's political, that's conscious, that's lyrical. He is one of the kings, no doubt about it. And there are others you might be able to, that you could mention. But nobody... I would argue, has fought for us to be in the mainstream as and, and do it unapologetically, political, conscious, lyrical, the way that Talib Kweli has. You know, Kweli insists that like these, that if, if, if I'm around, we're talking about the culture, we're talking about something pro-black, we're talking about something conscious. This is going to be pro-women. you know women. This is going to be about liberation. This is going to be about lyricism. He's just very unapologetically that wherever he goes, and he's pushed harder than the rest of us have. Part of that, or just, you know, one of the things is that he stays with the smoke. Like, he's always with the ish. He's always with the smoke. And he's a debater. And that's part of how that art form of conscious, political, lyrical rap came about. And so the, what people talk about on, about with Kweli is really that online, if you take shots at him or if you come after him, he's like, yo, I have the right to defend myself and to argue with you. Most other artists don't do it. Most people are like, don't argue with them. But Kweli is like, yo, it's my right to do that. These people are talking about me. They're talking about issues that I care about. In some cases, they're talking about his family. And Kweli is somebody who is a leader. And leaders oftentimes do things that the rest of us don't do. And they show us what it would look like if we did that. So Kweli is like, yo, I want to be at the table with prominent people. And I think that my type of music and message and movement should be there. And that means I need to be there. And so he is. I don't have that thing. I don't have that thing inside me that's like, I want to be in prominent spaces. I oftentimes recoil in prominent spaces. You know what I mean? I don't have that thing. And he shows us what would it look like if, what would it look like if someone like me were to fight like that? And he also shows (laughs) what would it look like if anytime somebody says something about you, you defend yourself and argue with them. And so there was this story that came up and I was actually with Kweli when this happened. I was in Yellow Springs with Dave Chappelle and Kweli. Kweli's the one actually that invited me. Kweli and Mo Amr were the people that were like, hey, you should come be here. You should come be here with what, and, and you know, Dave's talking about you, he's asking about you, you should come. And so I did, and it was really important for me. I could say other things about Kweli personally. He was nice to me and good to me before anybody needed to be. And Kweli has always 
spoken about me in places where he thought I should be. And that's how I know it's not just his own ego. All of us, our ego is involved in what we're doing and is polluting and is trying to get its arms around whatever we're doing, whatever good we're doing. If a person is in their room by themselves meditating and praying and doing yoga, their ego is there with them saying, damn, you're special. Look at you. The ego is always involved. So is his ego involved? Yes, he's a human being. But I know that, that it's very sincere because when there's no reason to, I hear from people, prominent people that I otherwise wouldn't know. Yo, Kwali loves you, man. Kwali was telling me how dope you are. You know, Kwali is somebody that got accused of harassing a woman online. And I was there with him while this was happening. And what happened was there was a conversation where uh, online where, where somebody was saying, and this is a black conversation and I do not weigh in in black conversations. I don't think people who aren't black have any right weighing in in black conversations. So I don't. So there was a conversation that was happening. Um, you know, black celebrities never marry black women. There's only like two rappers that have married black women. Only Snoop and some this other whatever have married black women. And so someone else said, mm, that's actually not true. And they put out a list of rappers that have married black women and Kwali's name was on the list. And this person's response was, well, they're all light-skinned. So this is the point where Kwali jumps in because, again, this is an internal conversation of black community. Not my place to weigh in at all and not a place for white people to weigh in at all. But it's around colorism. And it's the, re- it's the result of the lie of white supremacy and colonialism and things like that, that within the black community, there are com- there's a complex around color. And there's this idea that some people have that light-skinned people are better. And then there is also the kind of like response that like light-skinned people aren't really black. Internal conversation. So Kwali is like, yo, what's up with the colorism? He responded to her, what's up with the colorism? So because my life, my wife is light-skinned, she's not black. And so she responded to him. Some people jumped in. It got personal. I mean, you know, a lot of times, you know, the tone that Kwali has, I wouldn't have, but I'm not Kwali. So he's in his warrior spirit. And, and when people come at him sideways, he comes back with that same energy. But what I will say is that I've never seen him have an argument online, even if I wouldn't use that same like tone or whatever that he's using. I've never disagreed with him, especially when he's talking to white people about racism and, and what have you. That man has the right to use any damn tone he wants to. You will get no help from me policing black people on what their tone should be, whether or not they should be nice. It's like, man, get yourself right. And then people were joining in, and then the, the conversation got to a certain tone. And everyone that responded uh, supporting her, Kwali responded to every single one of them and add, added her, added her. And so over the course of a couple of days, it became this big conversation. And so the, the story was, the headline was, Kwali tweeted this, this woman 200 times, and he's using his platform for whatever. I'm sorry, he wasn't harassing that woman. She came at him. And he is, he's taken the position that if you talk about me on a public platform, it's my right to respond and defend myself, my family, my community, the things I hold dear. And it's his right to do that. It got very ugly. They doxed him. Uh, he was getting death threats. Um, they, expo- they, they talked crazy about his family and he had a child. Uh, his beloved wife gave birth to a baby that summer that he hadn't made public. Like he hadn't told everybody publicly, hey, I'm no longer married to this person. Now I'm married to this person. They called his wife, his new wife, a side piece. They called his baby uh, all kind of crazy names. And he's like, yo, y'all are talking about a baby? Like, let's be clear. 
This is how you talk about a baby. So um, the people asking about Kuali in that way, it's like, yeah, he's made his choice for how he wants to respond to that. And he does that while being one of the most productive, prolific artists of all time. When I talked about how much music atmosphere is released, Kuali is right there. And as an interviewer, as a podcaster, he's the best in the hip hop space. Of all the artists that know a lot about hip hop, I would argue Kuali's knowledge is as expansive as anyone. And he probably has the most expansive knowledge of the totality of hip hop culture and, and music of anybody. So you can disagree with him if you want to. I don't always get joy reading his posts. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like I do, I do go through periods where they're like, man, I, I need to not do this right now. If I could have a six, that's Kuali. And I was asked that question. So I'll just throw that in there with that question. We're brought to you by my dear brother, my friend, Usman the Taylor in Chicago. Uh, his company, his service that he offers the world is called Vice Gerent, V-I-C-E, Gerent, G-E-R-E-N-T. You know, this is something that we've talked about since the beginning of this podcast. And, you know, it's really important to me that, that I share this lost cultural practice with the world. You know, we tend to think about dressing, and it's one of the things that we always talk about when, we, when I'm uh, sharing the good news about my brother Usman the Taylor and Vice Jarrett. You know, it's, it's a lost art, and it's a lost cultural practice that the clothes we wear are made by somebody we know, and they do something to communicate who we are and, and who our community is and what our legacy is. You know, and I've seen uh, Usman over the years like really develop a style of, you know, he makes clothes for businessmen. He makes clothes for artists. He makes clothes for community people. Uh, he makes clothing for speakers, for teachers, for religious leaders and spiritual masters. And he makes each thing for each person. And I, I've just seen him bring together these different uh, cultures and these different influences and really help convey all of it you know, for, for a single person. And each time it's tailor-made for each individual. So this is a, a service and a practice, a cultural practice that I would just love to see revived. I live in Istanbul, Turkey, and almost the majority of religious people there go to tailors. And tailoring is seen as a religious art, as a spiritual practice, and as a religious art. You know, aesthetics is a spiritual art. It reminds us of truth, and it reminds us of the dignity of the human being and the beauty of the human being, and the the you know both that we belong to a group, and that we also are individuals. So all of that shows up in tailoring, and in Istanbul, it is seen as a spiritual practice, and and I think it's that way in Pakistan as well. And that's the lineage that our brother Osman comes from. You know, his family is Pakistani. Uh, he also went to like English schools where they wore suits and things like that. And, you know, now is in this community, this American Muslim experience that's so informed by hip hop and by black Islam and, you know, all of the fashion and the styles there. And so he brings it all together in ways that are really, really beautiful um, and can do it for anybody. You know what I'm saying? Like I've, I've seen him make suits for, you know, major athletes and major entertainers and cultural workers and et cetera. So the way that he approaches it is just incredibly beautiful. Uh, I just had an interaction with him and he was telling me that, you know, he's received some customers that have traveled to Chicago um, to work with him. And I'm telling you, 
you will not regret it. It's, it is an investment. But no matter where you're at in your relationship with your body and your presentation, it is a tremendous experience to be able to go and sit with somebody that pays attention to you, that makes clothes for your body, and that starts out with the idea that this is your body and we're going to honor it. That's a big thing that just doesn't happen in our culture. Everybody's got body issues. I certainly do. And, you know, to go to a place and sit with somebody who does this for a living, and, you know, he himself is in beautiful shape. <laughs> and so, you know what I mean? Um, and a lot of the people that he works with are as well. But, man, to, for him to sit with you and be like, man, for me, the first time I sat with him, I was apologizing for my body. I'm like, man, I got this and I got this. And I got this problem and this, this fat here and this and that. He said, no. We're starting from a position that you are you, and this is your body. And the beautiful task is to, to present you in a way that honors you and honors your body. We got to start with that. That's where we start, that you were willed into being by the creator of the heavens and the earth. The same one that made the, move, the stars in the sky made you. And the, the same reason that the stars are where they are is you. And so he said, man... We're going to start with what's beautiful about you. You know, you're big. You're a commander. You know what I'm saying? You've got big hands and you've got this, you know, your, your, your beard line. And we're going to accentuate that with the type of collars that we do. You know what I mean? And, you know, all these things. And, man, you leave there feeling like, man, God hooked me up. <laughs> this is the body I'm supposed to have. You know what I mean? And then you walk into a place, you put that stuff on and you're honoring what you're, what you're doing and you're honoring the people you're going to be with and you're improving the, the vibe and the atmosphere and you're adding to the ambiance of the situation. So, I mean, I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, head to, uh, to check. Follow, I would say follow them online is the best way. Vice Gerent Official. Really honored and grateful to be in partnership with UPF. Unity Productions Foundation. Unity Productions is a group of artists and creatives that make really beautiful, important things. They make incredible documentary films and things like that. It's really dope stuff and uh, it's stories that aren't being told. And, you know, that most of it is really centered in, in the importance of story and narrative. So the, that's Unity Productions. And then their foundation is really focused on using the power of story to empower people and also to help them share. Uh, they have a, a program called Unfold Your Own Myth. It's an online seminar that I'm blessed to be one of the contributors. And the, the, the intention and the goal is to help young people understand that your story matters because you matter, because you have lived a life that nobody else has lived. So you have a story that only you can tell. And it's important for you to know that your story has value and to know that your story is being authored by, it's a collaboration between you and the creator of it all. And that, that's very important. And then also other people need to hear your story. You need to tell it, you need to know it, you need to relate to it, you need to own it, you need to serve it. And then also sharing it will be helpful for other people because of the fact that you've learned things that no one else has learned and you can express them in ways that nobody else can. So this seminar called Unfold Your Own Myth is directed for young people, but it's good for everybody. And so if you are a person that works with youth, if you're a teacher, uh, if you you know have groups of any kind, I would say that even in a corporate setting or in a, a business, a work environment, it's a really good thing. You know, I was just talking with one of my business partners who struggles to, to express himself. And communication is really important to me. You know, and one of the things that I was suggesting is like, man, have you ever tried journaling? And, and maybe we need to do Unfold Your Own Myth with our 
like with our partners, with our team. Because, you know, obviously I'm the guy on the mic, it's what I do every day. But it's really important for people to have a relationship with their own story and their own feelings. And even stories, it doesn't even have to be your biography. It can also be the stories that you imagine. It's like that reveals so much about you. The what you imagine and the things that you want to describe and the things that you think about in in your creative mind. All that stuff is important. You don't have to be the guy on the mic. You don't have to be uh, the woman that's writing the movie. You don't have to be, you know, the sculptor, the whatever. Everybody's got a story and a relationship with their story, and it all deserves to be developed and 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 to to blossom. So, in any of these situations, or even if it's just interesting to you, check out UPF TV slash Unfold and check out Unfold Your Own Myth. Mm, 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 mm. My God, you are a very uh, patient people. You're very beautiful people. The fact that so many of you make it all the way to the end of these podcasts really makes me feel very appreciative and connected. And I'm just very grateful to you uh, who listen to this podcast. Um, if you like it, please share it. You know, I'm I'm still. It's weird, man. Like I'm doing a whole tour celebrating this podcast, and a lot of the people that come, even the VIPs, don't even know that we have a podcast. So. I really appreciate it if you would share it. If you if you get benefit from it and you think other people might that you know them, please, please, please share it with them. I want to end on something kind of light. Um, you know, one of the questions that I get, or I would say this is kind of a collection of a lot of questions that I get. People are really interested in what do I listen to? What music do I listen to other than hip hop? What's my favorite hip hop? Is there anyone that's inspiring me now? And I think that first of all, within hip hop music, I kind of have periods that I really that I really love. I really love founding hip hop music, like the originators, uh, Grandmaster Kaz. I really love Busy B. I really love Melly Mel, Cool Mo D, Slick Rick, that kind of like first generation. I really love Dougie Fresh. I used to have this computer that got stolen. Kevin Beecham that worked for Rhyme Sayers for a long time and is a, a tremendous hip hop historian from Chicago. He had a bunch of digitized recordings of old school hip hop parties. Back in the day, it was like the way that hip hop really started was live at parties in, you know, the the PAL and uh, different, you know, community centers and things like that in the Bronx and Harlem and then uh, Brooklyn and other places. But Bronx and Harlem are the most well-documented. And, you know, Brooklyn has DJ Flowers and like a Grandmaster Flowers. I I, I know. Uh, please, Brooklyn people, I, I know that and I respect it. And this is not just my bias because my wife is from the Bronx and I, I have, you know, extended family in the Bronx and I've been able to get a lot of this oral history. But the most well-documented early, early days of hip-hop is in the Bronx and in Uptown in Harlem. And there, there's all these recordings of uh, that people made that you know somebody would bring like a boombox or some sort of recording thing and put it on the DJ table and just record the whole party. So you hear Grandmaster uh, Flash DJing uh, with Melly Mel and the and and those dudes on the mic with him, Cowboy, and you know that whole crew. And then you hear Grand Wizard Theodore get on the on the turntables, and Prince Whipper Whip is up there with him, and um, Grandmaster Kaz, and you know that whole circle of DJs, Charlie Chase, and circle of DJs and MCs, the Grand, the uh, Fantastic Romantic Five, and the Cold Crush Brothers. So that's the era that like really I start in, 
And I love Houdini and I love the Fat Boys and I love early Run DMC and all that kind of stuff. That's what I was listening to. My introduction was that when I was like eight, nine years old. And then there's what I consider to be the first golden era, which was Chuck D, Rakim, KRS, uh, X-Clan. I really love all that stuff. Then you have the West Coast explosion with Ice-T, NWA. I do love all that music. Ice Cube is, is a huge influence on me too. I've met him, but I don't know him personally. There's a lot of what I do that's based on those early Ice Cube records, America's Most Wanted, Death Certificate is a really major important album in my life and in my world. Kill It Will, all that stuff from that time. And then there was a period, I really love Biggie. Uh, that you know that period as well. That kind of like early '90s. I love uh, Wu Tang and you know that whole movement as well. And then there was a period in the mid '90s where I just wasn't into it very much. And then when I came back to hip hop in the late '90s, you know uh, that that kind of movement of like Gangstar, Dilated Peoples, that's uh, Black Star. When the underground thing, independent thing, white labels and things like that, the roots, uh, Common. When he was in that period of like soul Quarians and stuff, that that really got me back into hip hop in a major way. So I love all that music, you know, Badu and Yasin Bey and the Roots and all that, that whole kind of movement. Uh, D'Angelo, everything that Questlove worked on, Dilla, you know what I'm saying? That that's a movement that I really love. And then to be really honest too, man, man, Jay Z and Kanye have just been such really, like I would say, that at the furthest point in my life when I'm a full adult, fully practicing hip hop artist, like professional, that's what I do. The people that make me feel like a fan most consistently are Jay Z and and uh, Kanye. So that's the hip hop music that I love. There's more, obviously. In terms of like who inspires me now, I really love Toby and Wigway. And I really love Mamuna Yusuf. And so there are really, I really love Bamboo, Rocky Rivera. You know what I'm saying? The, the music that both of them make really speaks to me. And I really love them as people and really admire them as people. Um, so in the hip hop space, I would say that's, that's it. Uh, to me, Black Thought, there's a, definitely a case to be made for Black Thought being the greatest of all time. Oh, man, Homeboy Sandman is crazy. Homeboy Sandman is super ill. Uh, he's a friend of mine that we've toured together, and I really love him. You know, I was friends with Doom, and our Doom is one of the greatest of all time. I was friends with Sean Price. Sean Price, they're both passed on. Uh, he's one of the best of all time. I was friends with Idea. I don't think anybody, definitely in the freestyle space, he's one of the greatest of all time. And yeah, I mean, it just goes on and on. I think Casual is extremely underrated. Casual from Hieroglyphics, he's one of the people that's like, man, he's kind of like a West Coast black thought where he's been dope forever. And everybody that knows about him, everyone that really knows, knows that he's one of the greatest. But for whatever reason, he just never really is brought up in those conversations when he absolutely should be. I really love Freeway. Freeway is a really dear friend of mine and he's an amazing artist as well. I always love to hear Freeway rap. Like every time Freeway is rhyming, it's like, man, this is amazing. Scarface is one of my favorites of all time. You know, Lauren is definitely one of the all-time greats. And um, you just kind of, and I would say the same for Badu. You know, some people say it's hard to to make that conversation for Lauren. I mean, Badu is a singer, but she's hip hop to the core. She's a hip hop artist that sings, like much like D'Angelo. But man, Lauren, to be considered the goat MC, you got to have your own albums. And you know, she's got her stuff with the Fugees, and she's you know amazing on all of that. 
And then miseducation is more singing than it is rhyming. And I get all that. But if you say that, then you know you kind of have to say something similar about Andre too. And he's one of the greatest of all time because Andre only has the one solo record and he's singing on a lot of that record. So I would say they're almost in a category together of clearly being among the great. But the fact remains that when they're singing, they're ill. But when both of those two, Lauren Hill, Miss Lauren Hill, and Andre 3000, Three Stacks, when they're rhyming, there's nobody better than them. You know what I'm saying? You can say they don't rap enough, but it's like, I mean, of all the complaints in the world, you know what I'm saying? And they're so prolific and profound with what they are saying. When they do rhyme, it's an event, you know what I'm saying? And um, yeah, so that's for hip hop. The music that I that, that I love the most is like 70s soul and R&B and gospel like that music, that's the time that I was born. And just the sound and the feeling of that music is my favorite music. And so during the time in hip hop, when most of the samples were coming from that, it's, it's no surprise that that music really speaks to me. So when you got like, you know, Dilla and Just Blaze and Ant and Kanye and No ID and Pete Rock a sampling 70s soul music and then some of the greatest rhymers like rapping over the top of it it's like man of course that music is going to really speak to me and that's what that's what i most of a lot of my career has been as well and of of all of them the one that speaks to me the most is donny hathaway there's donny hathaway songs that i can only listen to as medicine i, I cannot listen to a lot of those songs casually because like i got to be ready to really go to to cry it's like this is when it's time to cry I'm listening to Donny Hathaway. And there's a bunch of them. And honestly, man, it's like they're so intimate that I don't even want to say which ones they are. I probably have said it. I, th- I feel like there's an interview recently where I said it. Um, but he's got joints that when I really need to be healed, Donny Hathaway, there's, there's about four or five Donny Hathaway songs that are going to do it for me. But, you know, I love Gil Scott Heron. I love uh, Nina Simone very much. Those two are people that I really am pretty, uh, pretty crazy about. Uh, Gil Scott Heron. I think, did I? Yeah, Gil Scott Heron. Bill Withers. Um, and I could just go on and on and on. You know what I mean? There's just so many of them. But 70s soul music is music that will always speak to me. And it always, it, it, it makes me the sweetest, warmest uh, most present and connected version of myself. That music really does a lot for me. This is uh, someone in a category all their own. Amir Suleiman is the greatest living human being with words, in my opinion. What he does in terms of unspeakable thoughts and feelings at the core of who I am, being able to put words and language around that stuff Nobody does that the way that Amir Suleiman does it. I would say the same is very similar for Yasin Bey. But Amir's, Amir's ability to speak some of the most important things in my heart that I cannot speak. I cannot put words around many of the things that Amir Suleiman does. And in terms of poets, I mean, you know, Saul Williams wrote the liner notes for Uncle Sam Goddamn. I love Saul. I don't think there's a close second to Amir Suleiman. Maybe you have to know kind of like what he's talking about. Maybe you have to understand the tradition from which he speaks. But nobody puts the secrets of my soul into words the way that that man does. And he's one of my dear friends. So I, I should really say if I could 
add somebody to my top five. Maybe Amir should be in my top five. But who, that's what's so tough. Like, who do you take out? Like, do I take Rakim out? Can't take him out. Do I take, can't take Chuck out? Can't take KRS out? Can't take Slug out? Can't take Yasin out? Tough, 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 you know. Um, I also really love jazz music. You know, jazz music um, particularly... And, you know, I'm not a jazz, there's people that know a lot about jazz. I know a lot about hip hop. I do not know a lot about jazz, but I just know what speaks to me. And so this is not like a, you know, this is not like a deep digger type of thing. This is a very, like very ubiquitous, everyone's going to say this, but that some things are ubiquitous for a reason. Uh, Stevie Wonder is one of my favorites. Aretha is one of my favorites. Like everybody, those are everybody's favorites, but they're that for a reason. Marvin Gaye, you know what I'm saying? John Coltrane's album, A Love Supreme, there's periods in my life where I listen to that album every day. And it, and I consider it part of my spiritual practice to put that album on. I mean, I love Miles. I love, you know, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not in terms of jazz, like I'm, I don't have deep knowledge, but I do have deep appreciation. You know what I'm saying? You know, so like Sun Ra, Thelonious Monk, a lot of the names that are going to come up all the time. Miles Davis, Bill Evans. I really look up to Bill Evans a lot in terms of being a white person in a black musical art and cultural art form. He never tried to be the boss. He never tried to be the king. He was never trying to take over. He was grateful to be in the culture, to be in the art form, to be accepted. And he was, it seems as though he was universally loved and respected as not only being a beautiful person, but also being a virtuoso and also adding something to the culture. Miles talks about him in his autobiography, and he's like, man, if I could have Bill Evans with me, I would have recorded every album with Bill. Like, I, as his, the arrangement that he did, and his pianist, and just a collaborator, and a person that just, you know, really helped bring Miles' uh, thoughts and feelings and vision to life. I have a great, uh, just tremendous respect, and also just his playing is just bad, man. He's just, it's such a vibe. Um, I love the blues, but again, I'm not an aficionado. I love all the people that everybody loves. I love, you know, uh, Sunhouse and Muddy Waters and, you know, Lightning Hopkins and Howlin' Wolf. Did I say him already? And, uh, you know, all of the main, all the main ones that everybody knows. But I really do, I really do love that music very much. Uh, same is true with reggae. You know what I'm saying? Like, I love reggae music. I've got I've got a what I think is a really great playlist of the some of these art these like different musical styles and forms. I'm not master I don't know them the way that I know. I think my knowledge of hip hop is pretty extensive, but it's that's not the case. So if I play my blues playlist, my reggae playlist, it's going to be the jams. It's going to be the joints that everybody knows. You know what I'm saying? So um, you know it's going to be a lot of. Uh, Sister Nancy and Yellow Man and uh, Junior Reed and Barrington Levy is who I was thinking about. They're, it's like the same joints that everybody knows. Like anybody, any DJ that can play like the wedding version, the wedding playlist. Um, I also do genuinely love some R&B. I was never a big R&B head. Like when I was growing up in high school, I really loved Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of like Michael Jackson and Prince thing. Um, I was more of a Michael Jackson guy. And I love Prince, and I know you're not supposed to say that if you're from Minneapolis, but Michael Jackson very clearly was positive, spiritual, uplifting music in my life. Whereas when I was a kid listening to Prince, I felt like I wasn't cool. 
You know what I mean? Whereas like Michael Jackson made me feel like you don't have to be cool. You just have to be bright. You got to be, you got to be radiant. You got to be light. You got to be loving. You got to be virtuous and positive. You know what I'm saying? You have to be a light in the world. That's what I always got from Michael's music. So his music always meant a lot to me. And I love uh, my favorite Michael Jackson song. There's two of them, uh, maybe three. I love Butterflies, man. Yo, the song Butterflies, if I'm ever in a bad mood, Butterflies always makes me happy every time I hear that joint. So I love that song a lot. And then when he's a little kid singing Maria, Maria, oh man, incredible. And um, and then Human Nature, man, those joints. So yeah, that's just some of the other music that I listen to and... Um, you know, people people ask about that stuff a lot. Honestly, I don't know why it's interesting to people, but it is. And so I'm happy to share it. Yo, I just looked down at the time again, and this is really ridiculous that I've been talking this long. Um, if you're listening, I appreciate you very, very much. I really appreciate this opportunity to connect, um, you know, this opportunity to have this time together. And just for you for being here and for listening and for supporting and sharing it and all the beautiful things that you do as a listener. So thank you very much. Special thanks to the people that support this podcast, uh, to uh, Zakat Foundation, Unity Productions Foundation, Vice Gerent, and to our brother, our teacher, Rezma Minikim, and his new book, The Quaking of America, that comes out in April. Special thanks to Amna Mirza. Special thanks to Mansour Panawala. Special thanks to Last Word. Special thanks to Ant. Special thanks to uh, Amir Rahman. Special thanks to Darian Washington. Special thanks to you. And a big shout out to our producer, Brendan Kelly, uh, and his family. And we hope that you're enjoying yourself on your very well-deserved, well-needed, well-earned vacation. Travelers Podcast is a production of Travelers Media. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you. You can find out everything about what we do on brotherali.com. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.